If you would, take your Bible and turn to Exodus 5. Exodus 5, if you don't have a Bible and need one, there should be one in the pew in front of you or somewhere around you. Exodus 5, I believe, is on page 48. That's a guess, but I know we're in the high 40s, so you'll be close. Just look for the big number 5. What we're going to do today is actually, we're going to uh, cover chapters 5 and 6. I'm going to read beginning in chapter 5, verse 1, and uh, we'll go through chapter 6, verse 13. So a, long, a bit of a longer reading, but let's begin. Exodus chapter 5, verse 1, this is what the Spirit says. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went, to, went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with sword." But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer a sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves, whatever you can find, wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task, each day as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten. And were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must deliver the same number of bricks. The foreman of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task, each day. They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh, and they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge. Because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. 
Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of this land, his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by not my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you out into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and ask that by your Spirit you would teach us, that you would help us to see what you are saying, that we might know you more and love you more and follow you more. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we look back to all that has happened before this chapter, we see that all of those first four chapters are like a kind of prelude to the real action. And things are not looking good, right? Israel is in slavery. The days are dark. The oppression is heavy. The king of Egypt is relentlessly cruel. And Moses doesn't look like much of a deliverer. He didn't the first time he tried to intervene, and he's not looking any better right about now. But no matter how it looks to them or how it looks to us, God looks at the situation and He knows everything is in place now for His victory over His enemies, for the single greatest act of redemption in the Old Testament, God rescuing His people from Egypt. And as chapter 5 begins, the real action begins, the march toward salvation has begun, and it begins with a question. A question that is not asked genuinely, but we should consider it genuinely because this question lies at the heart of these two chapters. In fact, 
this question lies at the heart of the entire story of the book of Exodus. Indeed, this question lies at the heart of the entire Bible. And it's Pharaoh's question in chapter 5, verse 2. Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? If we take that question as genuine, it can be it can be it can have a couple of different senses. One sense of that question can be about identity, right? Who is the Lord? Who is he? What is he like? How does he operate? The other is about authority, right? Who is the Lord? Who is king? Who rules? Who reigns? Whose word is the last word? Whose power is supreme? And if we think carefully about this question, who is the Lord? We should very quickly come to the conclusion that this is the most important question that there is. A.W. Tozer wrote that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Who is the Lord? The way we answer that question not only sets the course of our lives, it sets the course of eternity. This is a crucial question. It's not just for religious folks. It's not just for theologians. It's not just for pastors. It's for all of us. Every single man and woman and boy and girl must come to grips with and answer this question. Who is the Lord? And in these two chapters, what we find are two wrong answers and one right answer. The first wrong answer we get is that the Lord can be dismissed. That's Pharaoh's answer. Moses and Aaron come to speak with him and say, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. That introduction, thus says the Lord, if you're familiar with your Bible, you know that that's all over the place in the prophets. And it actually would have been common in Egypt to, to begin a kind of divine pronouncement with, thus says, and then insert the name of the God that you are seeking to represent. But Pharaoh's ears will not tolerate Moses and Aaron's message. It confronts him where he sits. It aims to change him so that he changes from a man who is to be submitted to to a man who must live under submission. And Pharaoh won't have it. So in his pride, his response is sarcastic and dismissive. Verse 2, Who is the Lord that I should obey His voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let His people go. Well, Moses and Aaron go on to make another appeal. They say, The God of Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest He fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But it comes, it's to no avail, is it? What is it that Pharaoh's doing? Well, first of all, he's dismissing the identity of the Lord. Who is the Lord? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter who He is. Doesn't matter what He's like. Doesn't matter what He says. 
Doesn't matter what he's threatened. This Lord you speak of, he's no one to me. But he also dismisses the authority of the Lord. Did you catch that? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? I won't let them go. He will not submit to the Lord. He will not bow his knee. He will not. The Lord's authority means nothing in Pharaoh's court. They can ask all they want, but the answer is going to be the same. No. Now, Pharaoh's response is actually quite common in the world today, isn't it? Isn't it the case that men and women in our society and boys and girls in our society dismiss God and His authority all the time? Who is the Lord? It doesn't matter. What matters is who I am. If your idea doesn't get along with my idea of me, then your God can take a hike. And if His words are going to contradict my ideals, my morals, my ethics, my philosophy, my relationships, my sense of self, then His authority means nothing to me. I'm the king. I'm the queen. My life is my kingdom, and I make the rules. How I feel, what I think, is the only authority I need. Now, isn't that the way the world responds to God even today? Isn't it? Doesn't the world dismiss God like this? Isn't this how we responded to God before He changed us? Before the Spirit of God opened our eyes and gave us new hearts? This is the way of sinful man before a holy God. No, thank you. The tree on the fruit, the fruit on the tree looks quite good for wisdom. It looks quite tasty. We'll just take it. That's the same story of every generation of human history. But Pharaoh doesn't actually stop it, just dismissing the Lord, does it? He, he's outraged. He can't believe that this kind of request would be made in his court. And so he issues his own proclamation. Did you notice that as we read? Verse 10. Look at verse 10. He sends his taskmasters out, and what do they say? Thus says Pharaoh. Oh, you speak the Lord's word? Let me give you my word. You say the Lord is going to bring judgment on you? Actually, what's going to happen is I'm going to bring my judgment on you. Now, they've been living under oppression, but Pharaoh's about to turn up the heat. He's going to take this to a whole new level of cruelty. He had been providing straw for their work in making bricks, but now they're on their own. They can just find a way to get some stubble to make the job done. Now, if you have trouble picturing what that is, when you drive by a field and you see those giant rolls of straw, that's straw. You see those little nothings that are sticking out of the ground, that's stubble. You can't just go in and harvest it. You have to bend over and pick up every single piece and pluck it out. He's essentially seeking to make their work impossible because he not only makes working conditions worse, he also says, oh, you have to produce the same number of bricks that you were producing before. And he just goes off on them, does it? Don't say you can't do it. You're just a bunch of lazy good-for-nothings. Get back to work. 
Now, why is Pharaoh so angry? He's angry because God's message claims authority over him. He's angry because God has the audacity to tell him to operate in a different way than he wants to operate. He's trying. God, this God is trying to take over my nation. And he knows it. Did you notice how, how it stuck in his mind as he interacts with people? So in verse 8, he's got the taskmasters in, and he says, thus says Pharaoh, here's what you're going to do. And he, says, and he just can't get those words from Moses out of his mind. He, he says, oh, they're idle. All they do is cry out, let us go and make a sacrifice. And then the foremen come to him, and all they say is, why are you beating us? This is your own people's fault. And he doesn't even address their question. He just says, you're a bunch of lazy people. All you want to do is go out in the wilderness and make a sacrifice to your God. He can't get God's words out of his mind. He is stewing on them. He's churning them over and over and over again. How dare this God tell me what to do? Now, that kind of response to God isn't unique either, is it? Human beings love their lives. We don't think anything that we do is actually wrong. We actually believe that we have the right to do as we please, to speak as we please, to think as we please. And human society at this point in history is coming along saying, yes, yes you do. Whatever you say goes about you. You have absolute authority over you. Whatever you think is right, you get to determine it. And not just that. Not just what's good for you is good for you and what's good for me is good for me. No, no, no. We've gone way past relativism. We have absolutized relativism to where what I believe is good for me, you must accept is good for me or else. We've militarized it. And if you don't, do you know what happens? People get quite angry, don't they? When God speaks, when we are told our behavior is sin, when we're told that we must repent, submit to God, change, anger is a common response. And it boils out everywhere. At first, it may just boil out on the person who is bringing God's Word to us. But it doesn't stop there. It boils out at work. It boils out at home. It boils out to friends. It boils out online. And it could be hot, fierce anger, or it could just be stone-cold, silent anger. But do you know what happens in time? The calcification of the heart does. So that actually you just become quick to anger in general. The very slightest offense, the thing you would have overlooked before all that came to light, you now blow up about. And if the anger goes on long enough, you may even forget why you're angry at all. But you know you are. And you don't realize that the very thing 
that will free you from the anger is the thing you got angry about in the first place, which is your need to repent. I wonder, friend, when your friend or your parent or your Christian coworker or whoever it is comes with God's word to help you to see what's wrong. Do you get angry? Do you dig in your heels? Do you believe you have the right to be angry because this is your life after all? Who are they? Well, anger is Pharaoh's response, and it's grounded in the belief that the Lord can be dismissed. It's a tragic answer to the question, who is the Lord? The second wrong answer is that the Lord cannot be trusted. Now, nobody actually says this, but this is essentially the response of the Israelites, isn't it? Even Moses. They're not sure they can trust the Lord. I mean, things weren't always like that. At one point, they treasured God's goodness and compassion toward them. They were in awe of His greatness. You remember, they had been crying out to God for years, and they didn't know whether He heard them or whether, they, whether He saw them or whether He was going to do anything about it. And then at the end of chapter 4, Moses and Aaron show up and say, God sees, God hears, God knows, and God has sent us, and He will deliver you. And remember, they all bowed their heads in worship. But then now, Moses is questioning God. Look at this. Verse 22 and 23 of chapter 5. Why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? You have not delivered your people at all. And then in chapter 6, verse 9, Moses spoke to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses. Because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. How is it that their belief deteriorated into doubt? How is it that their faith eroded into skepticism? What changed? One thing their circumstances changed. That's it. That's all that's happened from the end of chapter 4 to the middle of chapter 6. You see, they were, they were promised rescue, but, but things aren't even incrementally getting better. They're getting worse. How are they supposed to trust the Lord when He doesn't immediately rescue them? How are they supposed to believe His Word when He's not doing what He said He'd do? You could imagine them saying that, can't you? A couple of men bent over, their backs now sore, hoping for the day that Advil is invented, and they're trying, and they're picking up, picking stubble out of the ground, and they're asking this to one another. You could imagine that children might ask this at the dinner table, right? Didn't the Lord say we'd be rescued, Dad? Where is He? Mom, why hasn't he done that yet? Is he still coming? 
It's the kind of question that was asked in 2 Peter 3, isn't it? About the return of Jesus. Where is the promise of his coming? You said Jesus would return. You said he'd end evil and establish justice. Well, where is he? Why hasn't he come yet? Is he still coming? You see, what's happened is actually the reality of suffering. Suffering is not an illusion. It is not a myth. It is real, and it is painful, and it can be quite deep, can't it? You know. You cannot. I know you know. But the reality of suffering has overshadowed the reality of the Lord. And can't that so easily happen to us? In our suffering, our pain, our cancer, our loss, our heartache, the opposition we face, it can overshadow the Lord. But how did they get there? How did they come to doubt that God can be trusted? Well, I want to suggest two things. The first is that they forgot who God is. Now, Aaron and Moses have told them all about the Lord and His plan and all that happened on the mountain, and they know who God is. I mean, they learned on their parents' knee who God is. They know about the interactions with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. They know Him as Creator. They know Him as Judge. They know Him as God Almighty. They hear the truth of God constantly. They could tell you about it. They could teach a seminar on the doctrine of God. But they've forgotten it. Now, what that means is not that they can't remember the information. To forget, biblically speaking, means that what you know is no longer affecting how you live, how you interact, how you make decisions. This is what we often call the difference between head knowledge and heart knowledge. And that's what had happened to them. And it happens to us, doesn't it? That the loudest and strongest voice in the days of suffering is the suffering itself. The suffering is what governs our lives. The suffering is what governs our decisions. The suffering is determining what I will do and what I will not do. And we've forgotten who God is. But the second thing is, is that they've listened selectively. Now, if you go back to, just glance over at chapter 4, verse 30, and here's what you'll find. Aaron spoke to the people all that the Lord had spoken. All. Not some of it. Not most of it. He didn't just highlight. He didn't just give them a summary. He didn't give them the Cliff's notes of it. He said everything. And do you know what everything includes? Everything includes the fact that Pharaoh's not going to give up without a fight. Everything includes the fact that Pharaoh's heart is going to be hardened. And now that Pharaoh's heart is actually hardening, they are surprised. We thought we'd be out of here by now. They're asking questions around the campfire like, why do bad things happen to God's people? Well, they've listened selectively, haven't they? Now, even with faith, the pain is still going to be there, deep pain, but faith goes actually to God, not away from God. Faith says, how long, O Lord? Faith does not say, how dare you, Lord? 
So often we listen selectively too. We, we come to Peter and we like, we like Peter. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We like when he sticks his foot in his mouth. And uh, we like when he tells us that uh, we're going to come out shining like gold when Jesus appears. And, and we like when he tells us to, to, to make sure that we have a ready defense when we're, when we're speaking to others. Uh, we like all, well, oh, we're a chosen people, Peter. I like that part. We're, we're a kingdom of priests. I like that part too. I like it all. And then he says something like this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And yet, do you know what happens when the fiery trial comes upon us? We're surprised. <laughs> this is very strange. I mean, after all, Lord, I am your child. I, I serve you. I seek to obey you. I, I, give, I give to the church. Why are bad things happening to me, Lord? Do you know what's happened? We listen to the Bible selectively. This is part of the great problem when deep suffering comes on. We've only listened selectively up until then. We've just glossed over things like John 16 when Jesus says, In this world you will have tribulation. Or something like 2 Timothy 3, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Or what about Psalm 119? It was good that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. I missed that in Sunday school. I saw the whole thing about your word as a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, but I didn't know the path would be this rough. And then Acts 14, where Paul says that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Friend, I wonder in your suffering whether you struggle to know that you can trust the Lord. And if that is the case, if things get worse rather than better, because I'll tell you what happens is the suffering comes on. And, every, and look, it is, it is wonderful that in grace, the immediate response is, the Lord's got this, he's gonna carry me through, here we go, put the piano of suffering on my back, here we go. And then a year later when the piano is still there. You see, the thing is, is that the weight of the piano didn't actually change. But the longer that you have to carry it, the heavier it feels. Do you struggle when you get to there to trust the Lord? And if so, I just wonder, have you forgotten who God is? Is the truth of who God is still governing your thoughts about life and your decisions and your relationships? Are you listening to God selectively? as if God's Word were a kind of buffet where you take what you want and leave what you don't. It's a tragic answer to the question, isn't it? When someone says, who is the Lord? And you say, well, the Lord is not to be trusted. Believe me, I've suffered enough to know. But then we come to the right answer. It's good to have the right answer. It'd be terrible to go. It's terrible to get your quiz back and see you got all the wrong answers. But here's the right answer. 
It's a right answer that should correct both of the wrong answers. The right answer is, he is the Lord. Now that seems like, well, that's just easy. You just say, who is the Lord? He is the Lord. Well, that sounds, that's exactly what God says. I mean, God steps up to the microphone in chapter 6, verse 1. As he's being dismissed and doubted, he speaks, and he says nothing new. Did you notice that? He just repeats everything, who he is and what he's going to do. Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he, sent them, he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. And then verse 6, I am the Lord. And then the end of verse 7, that you may know that I am the Lord. And then the end of verse 8, I am the Lord. Are you hearing a pattern? When things are repeated in the Bible, you've got you to listen up. What is it that God wants them to know? He is the Lord. Yes, they haven't seen His fullness yet. He, they know Him as God Almighty. They don't know the fullness of what the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D means yet. They don't understand all that Yahweh will mean for them. But He is the Lord. He is the one who is and who was and who will be. He is the God who is with them. He is the God who has made promises and will keep them. He is the God who will bring them out of Egypt from under the burden of slavery. He'll do it through His mighty power and through His judgment. He will give them the land. He will be their God. They will be His people. He is the Lord. Now, there's something very helpful here, is that in the midst of my doubts and in the midst of your doubts, do you know what we don't need? We don't need someone to come along and pat us on the back and tell us how hard, it, doubts are just hard, aren't they? You just keep doubting because doubting is just part of life. Do you know what I actually need? I need to know He is the Lord. That's what I need to know. Of, of course, doubt happens. But there are segments in the church where you would think doubt is to be celebrated. Where we're just going to throw a doubt party. We're just all going to talk about our doubts. And after everybody expresses their doubts, we're going to say, well, same time next week, guys. No, what is it that I, I need to come face to face with this God who has said things, who has shown himself? That I can know who is the Lord. He is the Lord. The circumstances have changed for the Israelites, but God hasn't changed. Things are darker, but God hasn't changed. The suffering is deeper, but God hasn't changed. You see, dismissing Him is just arrogance. Doubting Him is when we become foolish and think that other things trump the reality of who God is and what He says. But He is the Lord. That's the right answer. That's the right answer. There is no shadow of turning with Him. As He has been, He forever will be. And you see, every generation that comes along from then on is going to have to answer that question, Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? And as you read Israel's history, she is at her worst when she dismisses the Lord. 
and turns to idols. And she is at her worst when she doubts the Lord and turns to human strength for deliverance. They keep getting the answer wrong over and over and over again. And the question just hangs in the air, doesn't it? The end of the, end of the Old Testament, one of the things that hangs in the air is, who is the Lord? And then there's this carpenter in Nazareth, and he has a group of people following him. And these men stand around him, and he looks at them, and he says, Who is it that people say that I am? And all manner of answers come back. And then he gets more pointed, doesn't he? Who do you say that I am? Friends, that is the exact same question. It echoes throughout the Old Testament and it lands on the lips of Jesus because the Lord has stepped into creation in Jesus Christ. The Lord of creation steps into creation. The Lord of time steps into time. He took on flesh. Here is the Lord of glory in front of them. And how did we respond to him? We dismissed him. We doubted him. We rejected him. He came to his own people even, and his own people didn't recognize him. And yet still, he's going to save. You see, the story of God rescuing his people from Egypt, as great as that is, as wonderful as the movies made about it are, right? They just capture people's attention. They're only a pointer to something greater. There's something greater than the exodus of the Old Testament, and it's in Jesus Christ. You see, in the exodus, the Lord saves by pouring out a measure of judgment on His enemies. At the cross, the Lord pulls out, pours out the fullness of His judgment on our sin against His Son instead of us, His enemies. There's something greater and more glorious in that. He took on our sin. He took the judgment that we deserve in our place. He suffered and died to set us free. And then he was raised from the dead as a public declaration that his sacrifice is sufficient. That our forgiveness is secure. His sacrifice is enough. He's done all that's necessary for sinful man to be reconciled to a holy God. And that, for that, Paul says in Philippians, he has been given a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Who is the Lord? Jesus Christ is the Lord. And because of that, friend, Don't dismiss him. Don't throw him aside. Don't trample him. Trust him. Come to him. Believe in him. And you will be saved. Let's pray. Father,
how we need your grace and your mercy, how often in our lives we have gotten the wrong answer to the question, who is the Lord? We were sinful and selfish and hard-hearted ourselves in dismissing you until you came in your grace. And even now, when suffering abounds, we do not trust you as we ought. We doubt, we allow the sufferings of this life to overshadow who you are rather than remembering that the sufferings of this life are not to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed. In our suffering and in our doubts, Lord, help us to cling to what is right and what is eternal, that you are Lord. that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is risen from the dead, and He is Lord. Every knee will bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Give us grace to live knowing and never forgetting never listening selectively, knowing that you are Lord. For Jesus' sake, amen.